0: to episode two of I Am Here, behind the film. We came up with a name for this since the last time that we chatted with all of you. Uh, I'm Abby, and uh, but the made-up title of Editor-in-Chief of Thereabouts. And I'm returning with Angus. Say hello.
1: G'day, everyone.
0: And Isaac. Hello. And... Last time we were here, we talked about the origin of this project. Highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. But in summary, Gus and Isaac dove into the logistical quagmire of getting to Iceland during the pandemic, biking across the country during the middle of winter, and also Isaac got into trying to find the bikers as they were biking through the elements uh, as he was following with the film crew and they because they were keeping a distance didn't want to interrupt the self-supported mission but today we're getting into the highly unexpected second part of the story which really inspired the entire feature film that you're now making so for you guys uh completing the bike was really just the start of this journey in a way What happened after you left Iceland?
1: Yeah, so basically, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of context that should be well. Okay, so
0: okay, let's no, that's a good point. Let's let's provide a little bit of context. What was your relationship like with substances before this trip?
1: Right. So I'm an alcoholic, uh, and I got sober in. May, no, May 20 uh, was the day I checked into rehab.
0: Which was two months into COVID, two months into COVID, basically. Right, yeah. What inspired you to check into rehab?
1: That's a good question. Um, I woke up one morning uh, after drinking (laughs) very late into the evening. It was like a Monday morning or something. And I was fortunate enough to just have. Uh, a moment which a moment of clarity, which some people have, some people who uh, have the disease of addiction are fortunate enough to have, and that is a moment of clarity where you you just for whatever reason i I definitely cannot explain it, but it was like the light switched on, and I was like, all right, that's it.
0: Why do you think you had that light bulb moment? what Can you explain to us a little bit what state you were in? Yeah, happened. I mean it
1: wasn't like it wasn't like, you know, I woke up in the morning and I it wasn't like I'd had one of those benders which I definitely had more than my fair share of where you wake up and you're sort of like I got no fucking idea what happened. <laughs> and and you're like anything could have happened and you sort of have this like intense fear of you know trying to to piece together the events of the night to work out like what you destroyed or like what went down and hopefully like it wasn't anything that's going to like land you in prison or like, you know, whatever. And so it wasn't like one of those moments, which I've definitely had many of those. Um, but it was, it was, I woke up and I, and I could remember everything, but I think it was like at a point in time when COVID was really at the beginning, as I'm sure many people, um, many people sort of aware, but it kind of like, it was like a free for all, you know, because like all of our work had been canceled and, you know, no one was working and it was sort of this weird, like stay at home.
0: You're shut in your house. You couldn't see your friends. Yeah. You you could like, so you could kind
1: of just, just, just go for it with no fear of being found out or like no fear of kind of anyone really recognizing like, what you were doing. And so I definitely fallen into that pattern. Um, and I think I just sort of woke up one day and, and fortunately like the self-destructive desire, and maybe this is like an ego thing, (laughs) but the self-destructive desire that, uh, that particular morning was less than my desire to at least try and achieve something with my life. And I, and I, have a strong, you know, like love of film. And, and, and I, you know, it was like, I kind of had this moment where I was like, well, if I keep doing this, like it's I, like eventually there's going to be nothing left, you know. And, and also, you know, again, in that moment of clarity, I was like, maybe a lot of these things that I think have gone wrong in my life that have been by chance. Uh, maybe they're, you know, <laughs> more my fault than I think or I'm prepared to admit. And so it was sort of like a few things like that where I was like, I don't know. I just had a conviction basically. And I and I just acted on it that day. It's the first time I've ever done it. Like I've tried to get sober so many times. I tried to like cut back and do all of the things that you do. I tried to just just white knuckle it. But I'd never really admitted to anyone uh, that I had a problem with drinking.
0: How many years do you think that you were going through this before you had this light bulb
1: moment? I reckon, I mean, it's like a slow burn. Um, you know, it's not like one day I just turned on like my alcoholism. Like I didn't start drinking too late, I was an athlete very dedicated to that. When I say late, okay, this is qualifying this. This is for Aussies. But I didn't really, you know, like we'd always been around alcohol and stuff growing up and ever, but I never partied like as a 16-year-old or 17-year-old or 18-year-old really. It wasn't until, you know, maybe 18, 19, yeah, maybe like 19 years of age, 20 years of age, that I even really started like, you know, drinking beyond like drinking to get drunk, drinking for fun, drinking with friends, like, and that was really at, at university, at college, that that kind of started, and then it coincided with when I had when I stopped cycling for the first time, like, sort of ended my professional career, and bounced out, and and kind of decided that I wasn't going to have anything to do with cycling, and that was a very bitter separation because I, 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 there was no peace at all that I had made with, with the sport on my leaving. I, I really hated it. And I, and I, and it had like fucked me up. Um, and so like, but, and then you, and then you leave and there's all of these things that happen. You go from training every day and being accountable to that, to like, oh, there's no accountability. Like I don't have to train this morning. So I can sort of, you know, there's like, you just don't feel like you're hemmed in by
0: you spent almost your whole life living this very disciplined life with all these rules and regulations, and it's like school is out for summer. You know, I, I think we can all relate to that feeling in, in some yeah. ways in our lives.
2: And also, probably the you know uh, the people you're working with and the community. It's like people compared to like a group of professional cyclists. You know, people go to work and then they have a nightlife. And that was probably
1: different, right? Exactly. So that's you. like you hit the nail on the head in the sense that uh, in cycling, those who know endurance sport, particularly road cycling, I think, has this kind of mythology around it where it's 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 all based in, in suffering, yeah. which is self-prescribed. Um, and, you know, if you're not hurting yourself, if you're not sacrificing, you know, all pleasure for this, for the sport, then you're not giving enough. And that was very much the mentality I have. Like if, if I wasn't hungry, then I like literally hungry, like then I was, I was eating too much and, and I wasn't, you know, like being extreme enough with that. And if I, if, if I wasn't on the bike for, you know, like five or six hours a day, then you were, you would, weren't, you would, doing it too easy sort of thing. So like you have that mentality, that mindset that had been instilled in you from like a 12, 13-year-old kid. And to break from that because I just couldn't handle, I couldn't like make peace with it. My brain was telling me like, this is crazy behavior, my sort of rational cognizant brain. But then there was this sort of subconscious, like sort of, I don't know, there's probably someone has a, a word for it, but like the what had been instilled in me, the kind of like moral, whatever, like work ethic was telling me that I that I was too weak, you know? And so anyway, so I like broke from the sport and went to school, to college and everyone was having fun. People had fun. And it was like, this sounds dumb, but like the concept of of just letting go was like, you know, you only got to do that for three weeks of the year when you were racing and riding. So the fact that people did that like on a Tuesday night and on a Wednesday night and like they really let go and they didn't care what they eat and they drank whatever the fuck they wanted. And like, I was like, this is interesting. And it became a way for me from then, like from 21, drinking became a way for me to like switch off that brain that was telling me you can't do this or you're not good enough or you haven't tried hard enough or you, you know, you're not doing it right. Like that kind of brain, which I think everyone can relate to in one, in one way or another. And, and I could just fully escape it. Like it's the best feeling, <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's what it was like. So from then, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like from then that I had a problem with it. Uh, maybe I was different, but but it, that was definitely like I had the sense of it then because I was like, this is too good.
0: Too good to be true.
1: Right? Like, yeah, like this is – and then, you know, over the years, it sort of – it it oscillated, I guess. And then once I left cycling again for the second time, I think is when it really took over. So like 2000 – maybe before then, but like sort of 2017 probably – um, but it had been an abusive relationship from, you know, from like 2011, really. So like nearly 10 years, I guess, nine years. Uh, but at the end, it had. I mean, and I was always ho- able to hold it together. Like I was by no means, like not everything was. I mean, now that I say, yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> um, no, I think that's a fair
2: assessment.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, no, but that's it, it's not, but. Because you that's, like, that's a convincing – well, well, I mean, what's holding it together? Like I was still an alcoholic and it was without okay. a doubt I, I'm I'm not, so I'm sorry. I'm not trying that, No, to- you're right. So like – but I know what you mean. Like in terms of society's point of view, like I was able to sustain the way that I was living without drawing an, any attention to it or enough attention to it for anyone to really desperately try to intervene – Um, or I, and and I was able to maintain a level where I wasn't in hospital or like, you know, those sort of things. Were you
2: actively trying to hide it? Like, was it on your brain to be like, I want to like pull myself together. So, you know, my friends don't worry about me or something like that. Or was it more like a subconscious, like, you know, just to try to, yeah. I mean, that's.
1: For sure, for sure. And honestly, like I think about the way that I've moved around a lot over the years um, and like friendship groups that I've kept in contact with and not kept in contact with. And I definitely think that there is an element of like, all right, I've burnt out my like, you know, I've kind of like revealed my whole self to these people. <laughs> Maybe I need to cool it from them from a while, for a while and like I'll go over here. And like start anew. And I th- like looking back on it for sure. And I but definitely like there's a there's an active like you do all sorts of like cheeky shit to hide it. You know, whether it's like, you know, you're going to meet friends and it's like you drink prior to to going and seeing them with the but then put on the appearance that like you haven't. Or it would be you you know, you keep alcohol like around the place that you can just have and you know that no one will notice it. And there's like a strategy in like how you dispose of it so that it's not like, oh, in the you know, when you're emptying your trash, it's not like crash, crash, crash of the bottles, like that sort of thing. Like there's all sorts of like stuff that you do surrounding that, which is um which is very cheeky. And and I definitely did all of that to 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 hide yeah to hide it basically
0: did that feel hyper isolating during the pandemic which was already so isolating or did it actually make it did it it make you confront the reality more starkly
1: well the thing the thing that i liked to do like and this is kind of when you realize like I mean, it start, it starts to get into a dark place because you're able to hide it. He's like, I just like to drink alone, you know? Like, I drank one because I didn't really enjoy people. And that's what you tell yourself. But really, it's like you're just unhappy with who you are. And so, therefore, you can't, like, you you know what I mean? Like, it's like I would tell myself, like, oh, I uh, fuck, I can't stand this group or I can't stand having to go to this thing. So I'm just going to get drunk and then I'll just be able to deal with it. But the reality is that like, it's not that you can't stand to go and be with these people, you know, it's that you can't stand to be with yourself sober, but like you don't recognize that. And so that, so I found it much more enjoyable to just like, you know, get a case and like just drink at home, you know, and, or by myself. So, during the pandemic, it was great because you could do, that. you could just do that. <laughs> and like, uh, or, you know, and you could kind of be, be sneaky about it. Um, but also that was the thing that made me kind of realize eventually, like, like I said, you would have those moments where you sort of stack up like what the last few weeks have been like. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, like, you know, three nights during the week and And like two nights on the weekend, so like four or five nights a week, you're staying up until six in the morning. (laughs) And you're like, what? Like eventually you're like, that's not good behavior. Yeah.
2: Was there one activity or thing that you were annoyed about that it impacted the most? Like was it exercise or, you know, because a lot of, for instance, like when I'm, you know, have a lot to drink. Or like a few crazy weeks or whatever, you know, it's like it takes a few missed rides or whatever, where you're like, oh, this isn't, I feel bad about this. Was there like one thing like that you were used to missing or it fucking up in your life that you were just like annoyed about?
1: So that's an interesting point. And I used to like, and this kind of, go. I think this is like all tied in, in and this is probably a more idiosyncratic part of my addiction maybe not but I would would do that would <clears throat> go out and and' or drink all night or whatever and then I would like be you know so brutally buckled and 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 self full of self-hatred in the morning that I would like force myself out onto the bike to like punish myself in a way and that was like the cycle and so you might miss a day or two but I would like I would really like you like my relationship with sport then at that time was totally like this um like uh what's the it? yeah what's the like self-flagellance?
0: Yeah, exactly. Self-flagellating like
1: self-flagellating like relationship where it was like punishment. But at the same time, like that kind of I think that kind of like allowed me to 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 drink more. And like go further because it was like i was purging my system like quite frequently i wasn't maybe i'm wrong i don't know but i think like in hindsight like that's what it was like this process of where i would like you know pur- like cleanse my system through just belting it on the bike and then and then like i was able to i'd get back from a ride. i'm like i feel good <laughs> maybe like it's not so bad when you drink and then i would just drink again like it was always it's phenomenal how you can wake up in the morning and be like, I'm never doing that again. And then a few hours later, you're like doing the thing.
0: Well, it sounds like it was a vicious cycle where you were drinking to suppress this extreme, what's the word? Um, Not self-hatred, but a little bit of self-hatred for how disciplined you are. Like you're very ambitious, you're very driven. You'd spend your whole life living this, extremely disciplined life as a cyclist as a as a very serious cyclist and you take that away but you still have that though those feelings of control and discipline and you're on it's you're unsure where to channel them and so it ends up becoming self-loathing of just feeling feeling controlled by your need to control yourself if that makes sense and so 100 so then you drink to to suppress those feelings and then you wake up and you feel like you need to punish yourself by this extreme control of riding your bike and then the cycle just continues
1: exactly which is why like in a huge a big part of of recovery is there's a at least in in the different um sort of codes of recovery that i've been involved in there has always been a big spirituality presence um and that's not necessarily necessarily like uh any of the kind of typical religious type spirituality necessarily it's sort of whatever you want it to be um very sort of new age um but it's part of relinquishing that control and understanding that there are things that you do not have control over and that was definitely 100% like my thing it was and and the, and the alcohol like allowed you to kind of just like careen, careen over it. And then also I realized like for me, it was also, and this has been one of the most difficult things about getting sober was that like my anxiety, my stress and and this sort of self-loathing and, and all of those, those things, I was able to kind of hang on being hungover or, or drinking. And I was like, oh, this is why I feel this way. And so everything seemed quite simple. It was like, Even though I couldn't do it, I was like, well, if I just get rid of the alcohol, like all my shit will go away. So when I finally get to the point that like I can no longer handle this thing, I'll just like get that out of the way and it'll be smooth sailing. And that's not at all the reality. Like there's obviously these underlying problems there. And I just, cause I'd never, I'd never confronted any of that shit in my life. My, my whole way of thinking was just like muscle through it. And so, and then you start like, you you know, you remove the drinking and you're like, wait, these feelings still exist and now there's no way to quiet them. And then it's, then that's, then that's, that's recovery and that's, that's tough. Um, but it's also the best thing ever. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) I wonder if there's a correlation between endurance athletics, like high performance and endurance athletics and anxiety. Because training really hard gives you so much purpose and also zaps so much of your energy that it really quells anxiety. I've, I've definitely experienced this like when I was racing as a, as a pro triathlete and you're just exhausted all the time and you're training all day, you don't have time or the energy to be anxious. And it's when you're less active and you have more time that all of those thoughts can start creeping in.
1: Right. And I think it's a couple of things at work there. Like I think that elite sport attracts a certain type of personality. Yep. Um, and, it, and what it provides for that sort of hyper-controlling, very type A type personality is it requires all of these little micro goals, you know, micro purposes throughout your day, right? Like every day you have, all right, Train this amount. It's clearly, clearly like outlined. You do that, you've ticked your box for the day. Right. So you it takes it off of your mind, like, all right, I've proved myself worth for the day. Like I've done the thing that makes me like a decent human.
0: But it also gives you that higher sense of purpose in your life. You're training towards that race in a week, right? Or the Olympics in four years, or the Tour de France in six months. What you You have the micro purpose and the macro purpose.
2: And I mean, I've had training plans, but not as serious as both of you in terms of, you know, being professionals. But a training plan also is like created and decided by someone else. And there's this like, Mm -hmm. I'm relinquishing my thinking or designing of how this is going to look to this person. And I guess like, if you don't have that, it's just all your own personal
1: thoughts or your own like life design.
0: your ex- existential crisis just crashing down well, on you.
1: I mean, it's it's your higher power, right? Yeah. like and that's that's exactly what like it works in the same way. you're able to be like, this program is written by someone who knows something I don't, and therefore they're able to prescribe this as the perfect. Program, whereas you're so full of doubt, you're so full of like, but if I do it this way, then I'm not doing that. And if I do it that way, I'm not doing this. And then, well, there's this opportunity and there's that compromise here. And well, and you start going down that rabbit hole of recognizing that there's no perfect structure, there's no perfect system, but that's what you're craving and that's what you're chasing. And you've convinced yourself that there is a perfect system and that you've convinced yourself that there is a perfect model and you won't settle for anything less and then you lose your shit so like by yeah. by offloading that onto a coach you're able to remove like exercise that part of you and go well I've handed this off I've relinquished the control because this person knows more than I do
2: and there's like data there's numbers power files like all these things that you know allow you to check the box versus you know compared to normal life you don't have it's, it's a bit more subjective in terms of like, am I doing the right thing?
0: Well, that's the heart of it, though. It's the coach telling you that you are on the right path for your life.
1: Yeah, and then you learn that your coach is just as fucking clueless as you are. Exactly. And 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 the, and that the numbers, like the power meter you've been using, is like not been calibrated for three weeks and is completely off.
0: And it's based and, on a theory know. that's and maybe outdated. Like, and there's oh. new science that's come in saying that actually you shouldn't be training at 450 watts. You should be at 525 watts. Right. Yeah.
1: Watts. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah, and you should only you shouldn't be eating any carbs. And then it's like you should be only eating carbs.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But that's beside the point. The point is you have relinquished to a higher power, whether it's a coach or a desire to qualify for whatever race or to win whatever race. And that is what staves off the existential crisis.
1: Right. And then you, and you crave that. And you crave that structure. And then you go and you leave sport, for example, like I did. And, yeah. and then you go and work a normal job. And it's even though you still have goals and you still have, you know, assignments and accountability for certain things, it's not nearly as clearly defined and it's not nearly as regular. So it's not like I have my core session in the morning and then I have my key training session and then I have my my meal at this time and my pre-bed thing before this time, and I go to bed at this. Like all of that kind of becomes more ambiguous. And so there is purpose, but it's not as regular. And that like f- that for me, like for many, I'm much better at it now. But like when I first left, like that completely threw me because since I was like 10 or 11, I'd had that every day.
0: And it's it's something that we're not, you're not necessarily as passionate about, you know, like sport is something that you start doing at a really young age and you're just filled with this passion and drive for it. And a lot of my family are doctors and i feel like they have that same level of, of purpose and drive and and love for their career in saving people's lives but a lot of us like it's hard to find a job that fills you with that amount of of purpose and that's honestly i'd say that's why the three of us are sitting here having this conversation no one's paying us to sit here we just are we passionately care about telling stories in in sport that will help improve people's lives
2: Mm. yeah and the other thing too just to add to all this is like i'm out of control Mm. like having a training plan it's on you to do it and normal life there's curveballs and unexpected things that pop up not saying that there isn't being an athlete but it feels very much like you have the plan and it's
1: up to you to have the willpower to just get it done yeah, exactly. And everything else around your life can be falling apart, but like you still train today. And so, in your mind, as an athlete, like, and I feel like a lot of athletes fall into that too is like they, they're they just so hyper focused on their thing.
0: Always priority life, number one.
1: Everything else around the outside is completely shit the bed. All their relationships, you know, like their rent, you know, whatever, like their bike maintenance, you know, um,
0: yeah, I mean it's true. I even even now I I can't think of a single thing in my life other than being sick that has stopped me from getting in my run for the day or whatever sport I'm training for. So no matter how heartbroken I feel, how devastated I am, it always happens.
1: Yeah, and I was of the mind that like all of those things, like relationships, etc., like they're all they all come second to that thing, which is just it's the you know anyone who i can't stress this enough like anyone and no one anyone who's feeling that way isn't going to be listening to me talking like isn't really going to be taking on board what i'm saying right now <laughs> they're just going to be like all right i'm different and but you know perspective like it doesn't you know in the grand scheme of things uh it's not that important and it's very difficult, like, even, you know, like your dedication to a sport, like, you as a person is far more important than that. You being a good person outweighs anything else because you have to live with yourself. Like, I fucking have a very hard time looking back at the way I behaved and making peace with that. And I don't know if I ever will fully actually be able to accept that. And like, relationships and, 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 and just behavior like people I mean I don't know if they've forgiven me for it some people and maybe they never will either but like people have been far more gracious than toward me than they probably should be (laughs) and that's 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 all like that adds to it because you're like this is people are incredibly gracious and forgiving and accepting and all of these things and 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 I think about the way that I was when I was drinking and I was none of those things and so it's it's yeah, you like if there's any learning I can make is like you you need to be a good person. Like that should should trump everything else that you do. You should be thinking about that and you're like, you know, is is achieving this thing or is it like going for this training session right now whilst like someone else is going through something or my attention needs to be somewhere else. Like, is that really what I should be doing? Should I really be going to work right now when this other thing exists? And
0: You're raising a great philosophical question because we've, we've centered professional sport and even amateur sport, like kids who are trying to win national championships or, or even the local championship that we revere people who pour absolutely everything into the objective they're trying to accomplish. You look at anyone in society that we really idol is idolized, whether it's a movie star or an athlete or a politician, an artist, those many, many of those people are completely singularly focused on that goal. Not all of them, but especially in sport. And we celebrate those people and look up to them as kids and, you're, you're raising a great question. It are, is that the model that we should be idolizing and mimicking and, and teaching and inculcating in ourselves and in children, or should we be putting being a good person first?
1: Right. And I mean, yeah. And I think like, that's something that has been instilled in us, certainly in Western culture, um, for you know, over a thousand years, as the individual, as being you know at the center of the narrative and 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 the kind of pivotal part in that narrative the pivotal pivotal player in that narrative and um and so you know it's very hard to like remove your yourself or that way of thinking from that and i mean i'm not perfect at it like now it's not like i've become enlightened in any stretch of of the of the um or any sense of the word but I definitely have a little bit more perspective on on how I was behaving and at least I'm aware of like, oh, yeah. Because I never thought like the other thing I think that's that's interesting to me about about all of this is like I definitely didn't feel like I was being or acting. I definitely wasn't acting with any malice. Um, I, I, I always thought I was being a good person. But there's <laughs> you know a difference I mean? though
0: between intent and action, For right? sure. And this this reminds me, I feel like we have to bring up Ayn Rand, who wrote Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, her philosophy of objectivism, which a lot of people in this country have internalized. It's basically as pro-capitalism as you can get, but that philosophy purports that your the individual self-interest is always what should come first. And yeah. all of the characters in her books put themselves first. They're incredibly selfish. They're all very successful, very attractive, live these quote unquote, perfect lives, but they don't really have any real relationships and don't really like give back to society in a soulful way. They give back in very material ways, but the human connection aspect of it is totally gone.
1: Right. Yeah. I, that's, you, you bring up an interesting point there. I feel like I mean I have I have opinions and I know people <laughs> like this in the in the world uh by yeah I agree with what you're saying um but without being able to necessarily speak any deeper on it because I'm not nearly versed well enough on it but yeah my my intonation is to or my inclination sorry is to be uh is to be soulful
0: This is I love this sidebar we've we've really <laughs> The we have yeah. This, to be fair, these are conversations that we have all the time because I think all three of us love love talking about this stuff. Uh, but in the interest of giving our our listeners uh, the story, they perhaps might have shown up for if anyone is still right. listening.
1: But it's all part of it. This is, it it is, is how I got sober. Well, and
0: it it I guess to put a to put a button on that addiction. And alcoholism perhaps specifically, I, I'm definitely not an expert, but it, it seems like it it really is tied into this spirituality that you're talking about and it's just a way of coping for not having figured out the spiritual side of your life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um and I and I honestly like I'm still trying I still have such a hard time. Uh working on that now and I the treatment program that I went through um, was sort of
0: in May 2020
1: yeah it was based very much around like um, uh, like cognitive behavioral sort of science um, and and looking at behavior patterns and then and what what changes your brain goes through uh, as a result of alcohol or addiction. And then what changes it goes through when you sober up, and 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 then being able to identify these patterns and all this sort of stuff, right? But like, kind of taking like, I guess as hard science a point of view as you can be when it comes to neurology and and thinking. Um, so that's all to say, like, it sort of it, it applies a framework f- for which you can like recognize um, how you're behaving, but then also to like what's going to happen to you. When you sort of leave and and they encouraged a strong spirituality side but i really rebelled against it and and i was very um programs like aa at first i was very like against because it had that spirituality element or at least the way i had been fed it which i think is also a defense mechanism um but the way i felt i had been fed programs like that throughout you know, being aware of them was that they were very much like, Oh, you, it's God. And, and you have, you know, there's this huge sort of God element and I was like, fuck that. Um, yeah. If you don't believe I've, in
0: God, that it's going to be hard to get on board with that
1: program. Right. And, and now I find um, the most healing from, from AA <laughs> in, in that program. Right. And I, and I've like, I, yeah, I'm like coming to it um, more and more. As, as the source of continued recovery <clears throat> after I did that initial. And it took me a long time to get there and it's taking – and I'm still trying to figure out what what spirituality, you know, and what like a higher power is in my life. Like I, I honestly – like that's the thing that I'm like trying to work on the most and like it's still trying to relinquish control. But there is – I know it's there because I know there's something there because I'm sober. I know there's something there because I woke up one day and was like, this is it. And you're putting in the effort to explore it,
2: which I feel like is um, an amount of work that is probably greater than you think in terms of like identifying this feeling.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And being willing to it, being willing to, and maybe that's part of it, you know, like maybe part of my higher power is that understanding or accepting that that, that that there is a thing out there that I will not and cannot, Ever understand, and it takes no shape, you know, in my mind, and 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 the concept of it will never be concrete, Uh, but it's there, and maybe that's it. I don't know. That's where it is at the moment.
0: I I personally agree with you, but it's. I feel like it's all subjective, right? I mean, if you totally for sure. My perspective is it's completely arbitrary and random that we're all here. It doesn't make sense. You look at what happens in the world on a day-to-day basis and it making sense of it would be a disservice to what happened. You know, if you look at gun violence or or the war, all these things that are happening. But at the same time, the human condition, we crave narrative. And so we have to try we can't help ourselves, but try to create a narrative. And I think finding that higher power is part of that.
1: Yeah. And I think like, I mean, a lot of like, it all comes from within us, right? Like the concept of higher power is something that's come from within us as a species. So like, you know, it's exactly. it, it like thinking about it in that way. Like it's, it's more, uh, an acknowledgement. I think you're making, of, of you're making no a racket over there.
0: <laughs> sorry. Oh
1: yeah. Sorry. Oh. We're,
2: we're oh. Just, I am uh, doing some IT work and uh, plugging in the laptop.
0: <laughs>
1: there we go. Now we've got power.
0: I'm sorry, guys. you were saying something great.
1: No, oh. just that, just that like, you know, part of it is, is maybe, maybe that it's just part of it is, is uh, accepting that we can't understand and know everything. And that's fine to not, to not be able to do that. Yes, it's fine, it's okay. but we're
0: still going to wrestle with that for the rest of our lives. Maybe. Yeah, maybe.
1: I mean, yeah, maybe you'll exactly. reach
0: enlightenment and you won't. Some of us will.
1: I don't even Yeah, I mean, fuck. What what would you do when you got there?
2: Right? Peace. I guess so. Yeah.
1: But like you know, I think part of the the joy of life is the is the is the friction. The struggle. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah. I revel in that.
0: Totally. I know. I, I look at some of my friends whose, whose lives are, you know, they're married and they have their kids and the house and I'm sure they have friction on the outside. It looks like there's no friction and it looks boring. But anyway, no offense to all my friends who, whose lives are like that. I fully I support you.
1: Just full <laughs> okay. burn. Anyone who's married and, and is adjacent to Abby.
0: <laughs> I love you. You're still my my friend. I admire you. I admire your inner peace. But
1: you're boring. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No. (laughs) Okay. So you went to rehab. You came out of rehab, and you were sober until the Iceland trip. So that was a right. That was almost a year.
1: Well, I think there's. It's worth like contextualizing this right now in this in the um because it's kind of weird. But contextualizing this in the sense of what the film and the way that the story and the narrative plays out in the film, it's essentially an amalgamation of two times that I've been stuck in Mexico. Uh, since I've gotten sober, I've relapsed twice. Once was quite a major one. Um, and that was in Mexico. Um,
0: was that this, the Iceland trip or was the, not, the first trip? That was not
1: the Iceland trip. Uh, it was a different trip.
0: Which is, came um, before the Iceland
1: trip? Came before the Iceland, so do it was about three months. Do you
0: want to just quickly say what happened? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So
1: it was a, it was about three months into it was. Well, it was exactly. It was eighty nine days, uh, and I drank on the 89th day, and I I did probably what many <laughs> addicts do, and they think, you know what, I think I have got a handle on this. It hasn't been that hard to do ninety days. You know, I got through it. I don't really. I can probably drink. And, so you ordered uh, a drink. Well, I just, I I, I was on the plane to Mexico from the UK. And I, on the plane, I justified that I was, I had to do this quarantine. And, and so uh, I got to Mexico and like I got in the rental car and I drove straight to the first gas station and I, and I, and I bought a beer. And I'd been thinking about that for, for ages. And then I basically, and then I basically just went apeshit for like two weeks. And then, <laughs> and then, and then, uh, in that process, uh, a few people very, um, very aptly like held a mirror up and, and sort of showed to me. And I knew it. I knew it that I wasn't fine. Um, that it wasn't, uh, that it wasn't normal behavior. Uh, and then, and then so I, I went back into treatment and, and continue well, continued treatment i'd sort of left it and then i i went back uh, and continued it and then and then real like i would call that my only like the that was like yeah that was like the main that was the main one that was like a real fucking meltdown um and then and then after iceland i getting stuck really triggered me and and i did a lot of i did a, a, a cause I was by myself as well. So I did a lot of going to the gas station. So the first thing I did was like, I freaked out and I was like, I need to go somewhere I'm familiar with, like all of the kind of things that you're taught in treatment to like do to handle, um, like triggering kind of scenarios. And, and this was really triggering, I guess. And so I went, I, I like, I kind of once I figured out that but, but
0: just time out, do you think it was triggering because you had totally lost control of the situation, being stuck in yeah, Mexico. Yeah,
1: exactly. And it's like it's like things that would like triggering in the sense that like like your reaction to the the situation typically would be to drink. You know, that would be like your way of putting off taking responsibility for the situation, or putting off dealing with the situation, or you know, putting off dealing with your emotions um, or whatever, like there's any innumerable, you know, but for me and probably for like a lot of other people who, um, who are addicts, they have, um, you basically justify drinking for good, for any, for any feeling. So it was, it was triggering and I, so I flew to a place I knew and I got, I got a hotel. Oh, that's I got why like you went to, to the stay. resort. Yeah, like I went to like that Tulum like region, that beach town, and I just got an apartment there. And um and basically just like locked myself kind of in in there. But I did do a lot of like getting my car, drive down to the gas station, go in, like open the the door to the like the booze and like I would look at it and I would like the cool like
0: the cool uh, air. Like
1: I can remember it like so vi- like vividly now, you know, like and the cool air is like blowing out from the thing, and then you would close it and you would do like a lap of the of the thing and cause you're like, nah. And then you would do a lap, and as by the time you get back to the door, you're like, fuck it. Yeah, I'm going to. And then you would go back and you would go back with conviction. And then you would get there and something, something would like tell you don't. And you would like open the door. And then I would like call someone. And like that would stop me. And then I would go home. And then. So I sort of did that a bit. And then like that was like being back in that environment like after everything that had happened in Iceland and had been such a like hectic experience and I'd really tied my sobriety to like succeeding there and to like that expedition succeeding I was like I fucking did this thing that I thought was really hard and then I never thought I would be able to do again and I did it so I'm fine like
0: I've conquered everything. I don't
1: have cravings anymore. I'm never going to have those again. And like it was so insane how I hadn't in the lead up, like in the months leading up to that trip, I hadn't had any problems with being triggered or with having the daily kind of cravings that that you would that you sort of did in the beginning, but also would think. And then I really just thought that that was gone, and I had totally not taken my my addiction seriously up to that point. In my treatment prop, like, like as seriously as I should have, I had just sort of stopped doing the thing. Uh, and then I got to, and then I got to Mexico and like instantly they came back like so hard and in just this mega way, like, and I would order a drink and then I would like send it back or I wouldn't drink it. It would just sit on the table, you know, like all of that type of thing. And, and that happened, that happened, that happened. And then right at the very end of, of the trip, I like of my time, in Mexico, like the, the next day, we were supposed to be flying out, and it just got fucking wasted. And how did that come at about? this hotel? Well, I got fed. I was sort of like having like a non like I was. I asked for like a non alcoholic like pina colada or something like that, like some ridiculous because we're like oh, we're on the beach, and and they they didn't. It was lost in translation. The no alcohol bit. Totally though, like I was like, oh well, I asked for it, and they, you know, I asked for no alcohol, so I'm absolved of my wrongdoing. But that's not true at all. Um, you took a step for You were it.
0: like, oh, this definitely has alcohol in it. No, but- I didn't
1: notice it. I drank like the first one, and then oh. I noticed. I was like, fear- I was like, I feel good, and and then I realized, and I was like, oh well, it's fuck now, and so I just went for it, and like woke up the next day and I was, I was so ungodly sick, like this, the, like would, I I would have to stop and pull over and like vomit this yellow vomit. Like it was, I've never been hung over like that before. <laughs> it was so rude. And I was in the airport and I was like shaking and sweating and I'd have to like leave the line, uh, the check-in line to like go and bath in the, in the toilet. Is
2: this
1: and I was speak- like, I, they're the definitely going to think I have time. COVID. You this told is the first us- time.
0: So this is cuz you told us so earlier this is when that I went, you went the first time and they turned you around. So that's this
1: time. Yeah. And wow. I went there and like they I was like they're definitely going to think I have covid. Um but they didn't even get to that point even though I didn't I had the negative test but they were like you can't get on this plane. You have to stay. And then I got a hold of the of the uh, basically yeah they were like you can't fly and I was like who said? And they're like the uh, um, U.S. immigration, and they get, and they actually, I got the phone number of my case officer, which was in hindsight a mistake, but <laughs> I felt like it was a win at the time, and I thought I am going to be able to convince this guy to let me in, which is the craziest thought. And I called him, and he knew I was calling somehow, and he was pissed. He was very not happy, and we got into an argument on the phone. And he was basically like, I can. He he was basically like, I can kick, I can cancel your passport, and you can, and you cannot enter the US for ten years. How would you like that? Like, and I was like, oh, whoa, 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 like backing up, and uh and then he was like, you have to stay, you have to stay for two more days in Mexico, and so I did. And um, and then that was the last time I've ever ever had a drink.
0: So it was just that one day, in it was
1: just that one night. Yeah.
0: How do you feel like you were able to cut it off so
1: fast? Well, because that the first time like was very much a like it was a desire to like it. What I hadn't accepted like that I had this disease and and all of that. And the second time around, I honestly think that like it was sort of like I was willing it to happen um, and and then when it did like the, it was just a reminder of why I didn't want to do that anymore and like why that wasn't who I was and like so it was sort of you know I mean it was still it still was what it was but it was it was it was easy for me to not it was like a real good reminder I was like yeah I need to keep working on this shit uh, I need to like keep hard on my recovery and also like my approach to it had been so so narrow like so shallow, you know it was sort of like again just behaving in the same way like, oh, if I can achieve this thing, if I get to this sort of goal, you know it's the same same way of thinking of like you're pinning it to um, you're pinning it to this like higher purpose of thinking that you're that you're like, Narrative is more important than anything else, I guess.
0: Well, it also sounds kind of like hubris in a way, or that's the wrong word—complacency. You can relate to this in sport. Like, if you have a good race and everything clicks off super easy, you're like, "Oh, I'm the shit. I got this covered. I don't need to think about nutrition or my training's perfect. I don't need to work on my my mental game. Like, I'm good." And then you have a bad race, and you're like, "Oh, wow, I have so much work to do." So it kind of sounds like. That's where you, what you went through. And then, especially with the Iceland trip, which went so well, you all accomplished something that had never been done before. You had hyped it up in your brain as this huge challenge that you had then accomplished. You're on top of the world. You're invincible. And then the real test came at that, really, that moment of, of vulnerability where you felt invincible.
1: Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And I, yeah. And it was like, I mean, yeah, what you said is, is exactly right. Like, you know, kind of held a mirror up. And I guess like, it's also up to you, like, as a person to see that thing, to recognize that, you know, because it would have also been easy for me to be like, ah, see, I just like drank one night, you know, I don't, I didn't feel the need to do it the next day. So like, I can probably just do this every now and then again, you know, maybe I'm one in the billion that can. Um, And so like, I was again, like kind of lucky in that regard that, that some of the work I had done sort of kicked in, I guess. But, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, for me, I sort of recognized like, oh yeah, this is like completely separate from anyone and anything else. Like it's my work that I need to do, like me climbing to the top of the mountain is not going to fix the problem. But at the same time, like that trip and the experience I had with Chris and with Rebecca and the things that I learned, like the relinquishing of control that occurred on that trip and 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 the need to – I'd never done anything where I had to rely on other people so much. And like my sobriety, like a lot of it was was, you know, I, there was only like, really one other person that i like went through that process with i didn't it wasn't like i had a number of people that i even really told um about like my family didn't know for for like the first three months of like me being sober so like you know like so i hadn't because i i I didn't that wasn't in my personality and, and and honestly like going on that trip um or doing that expedition like really helped with that and and then as a result afterwards, I was sort of far more, I had the ability to be like, yeah, this is the thing that I am. It's it's not, I'm not proud of it, but I'm proud that I've like gotten this far without alcohol and I'm proud that I'm sort of getting past it, but also like I do still need help and it's fine for me to talk about it and it's fine for other people to know about it. And like that also helps me kind of, work out what the fuck it was anyway in the first place. So like it it definitely helped me open up and and help me move on like like doing the expedition in Iceland. It just helped in a different way. You know, and that's kind of what the film is about. Like you know, I thought that I would not feel the physical desire to drink to, to simplify it a little bit, but like I felt that I wouldn't have that that feeling ever again once I sort of like completed the expedition. But it wasn't that. what it gave me what it gave me was was something far more powerful and that was the ability to ask for help and the ability to be like, you know what guys, I'm not perfect. I have all of these things that are wrong with me. I can admit that to you. And by me admitting that to you, we can, you care enough about me that you're going to help me through it or whatever. So yeah, it was sort of, it was just a different learning experience than I expected it to be.
0: I wonder, do you feel like you gained self-awareness on the Iceland trip in the sense that when you were recounting your experience in Mexico, you were so self-aware about how it was triggering for you for these certain reasons and how, your desire to drink was to cope with those triggers. And I'm just curious if you gained that more through your experience with alcohol alcoholism or if it was also through these athletic endeavors.
1: Well, I think like being an athlete, like you become incredibly self-aware in a very physical way or a physiological way, like in the sense that, you know an athlete's really aware of like their energy levels their balance of their body like you know their emotions all of that because like it all ties together into performance and you're so attuned to that because that's constantly what you're doing is assessing your your physical and i guess you are assessing your mental state as well but in a in a kind of different way so i think i learned the ability to be very like self assessing or have like a very Um, great ability to uh, self-assess but I think I had an incredibly poor ability to like interpret that data Mm. (laughs) you know Mm. what I mean so like doing these expeditions uh, well sorry being an athlete like taught me to be very like have a very be very attuned with my body and my thoughts and all those things but it wasn't until yeah like getting sober that taught me to to be able to assess the data from that in a different way. And then and then expedition is travel and, and athletics is way different to racing a bike or or these individual events. It's all about teamwork and it's all about relying on, and it's all about being vulnerable and all about being honest. And like so that that element I had never had before. Cause even in a team environment, you're still putting your best foot forward. You gotta put the bravado on because it's like if I show any signs of weakness with me, it might plant a seed in this person and this person and the whole team falls apart. So like team athletics is still very or game-centered, like team athletics is very, we need to to put this bravado on. But in, in expedition stuff, it's like if you fuck up, like the whole thing's over. You know, if you like, if you forget to put a base layer on or like, you you lose a glove or like you I don't know, like sweat a little bit too much. Like the whole thing can be over for everybody and and you can be in some serious shit. So like you have to be well it requires a that. lever
0: of vulnerability that allows you to be honest with yourself. If if it yeah if, if it's too much, you have to tell your expedition mates that it's too much because you can't fake it.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, Isaac, do you want to explain how I Am Here, the film that you're making, encapsulates this fictionalized version of of these two stories, what happened in Iceland and what happened in Mexico? And you don't have to go into too much detail, but I feel like it's important for us to emphasize that this film really is a scripted film with this, of course, this document like the the documentary aspect of Iceland, which was a real trip. You guys actually biked across Iceland that actually happened, unlike in a normal Hollywood feature film where that would just be fake. Uh, but how did how are you weaving those two components together—the scripted part part and the documentary part?
2: Well, you started to mention the order in which we film this, which I guess that's probably the easiest way to to answer this question. Um, In the last episode, we mentioned that we originally planned just to make three five-minute films, so that we shot that, and we got that in the can, and then it was only a few months after um, we completed the trip, because also the other thing is, I think you let everyone know that... I'm looking at Gus, by the way, for everyone who's listening, um, that you uh, were in recovery at the finish line. I remember you mentioned something to Chris and Rebecca and me being like, basically thanking everyone because this was like a very important moment because of what you were going through. And no one knew... And that was sort of like the 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 way you let everybody know. And then a few months went by, and then you got stuck in Mexico. And I think like as we all started sharing, the we we all started sharing what we were up to in our normal lives after the expedition. Is sort of when you s- spilled the beans about your experience in Mexico, and I think Rebecca and Chris and myself. Um and Ben Hardman were all just like Oof. shocked because he didn't share it while you were there. And then slowly we we realized
0: This is the first Mexico trip or the second.
2: No, like after the actual expedition. So okay, it would have been early summer probably is when it was decided that this topic um would be important to explore. And um from there we we. Uh, it was chris chris's idea to basically set uh half the film in mexico city um and and create a script and then and then sort of bounce back and forth between the Mexico City experience and the flash and use flashbacks um from the actual expedition so the expedition is linear and and same with the the mexico experience and it's sort of like. Ping ponging back and forth um, through Gus's experience, uh, just trying to survive.
0: And we'll have Chris on to talk a little bit about how he came up with this idea because it's it's so out there, honestly. To take your your three five minute films in Iceland and transform it into this scripted story that takes place in Mexico City. I'm I'm very excited to find out how he came up with that idea. Um, and this is a question for both of you. Why, why did you want to tell such a deeply personal story about a semi taboo topic?
2: That's a great question. (laughs) I guess, uh, I just felt like the, everything was pointing to this as being like the natural, sort of just like the, the story to tell. I don't think we tried to force it or anything. I think it's, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, it's a topic that everyone deals with and it's symbolic to any problem that anyone struggles with. And so I think that we, we just picked alcoholism as, a, as sort of a category, but it could be any sort of struggle that people deal with. Um, as they sort of navigate life,
1: yeah, and I think to add, I mean, to add to that, like, for me, this is like, this has been the easiest way for me to talk about my disease. You know, like I I sort of mentioned before, like it took me a long time to even speak to my family about, I mean, they all knew obviously, but like, but for me that I knew and that I was also that I like, like that I was now sober and that I was like taking those steps, right? Like, um and it even is still hard to talk about it now in a direct way um, to people like that. But for me, when, when Chris versus like, Oh, let's, you know, that sounded like Mexico city before I even knew that I had, relapse there he was like it sounds like that was a an, you know a tough experience i wonder if there's a way we can sort of tell the story <laughs> And i was like oh well you know <laughs> yeah and and isaac and i were like this is a way that we can create something really artful and interesting but also when i sat down and began writing it um it was so cathartic because i really had to think about like these two experiences because it's an amalgamation of of the first relapse in Mexico and the second relapse so it's an amalgamation of those and, and, and a few other experiences that I've had and and it really helped me think through all of it and put it down on paper and process and so it was for me healing you know if this movie never gets made like that that process of going th- of, of actually like going through that has been incredibly um, healing for me and so yeah like, essentially this is the easiest way for me to talk about it um, and process it and as Isaac said and, and Isaac's like been a big proponent in doing this because of course you you know for me sometimes I'll be like yeah this is exciting and I can't wait to do it and then I'm like what what am I doing this is psycho who cares who cares about my about this thing but Isaac brings up or at least, he, you know, like from his perspective, he's like, well, there's, you know, that there, there is a there is more good to be to be had from this than than just the good that that you get from it. Um, and so I believe that to be true. I think even just in the process of talking about the film, the number of people that that I've had interactions with that have been positive has been encouraging. Um, and so that's been, you know, a, a good motivator as well to like kind of push forward with it when you sort of like is what's yeah, what am I doing here? What are we doing here? So yeah, ideally there's greater good. I look at Isaac. <laughs> ideally there's something good gonna come out of this. <laughs> That's yeah, more I mean, it's, than just it's my about- own personal catharsis.
2: I um, yeah, I mean it's already been great. Just a process of like collaborating with everybody, to your point, being having a reason to to just talk about life stuff. Um is good to break the ice, and I think it's a healthy sort of process to um, try to put this thing together. Although sometimes stressful,
1: but yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that I want to say, actually, on that was like a lot of the depictions of addiction in in the media is like severe rock bottom moments, and then cured. You know, like twenty years sober, doing fine, and like. My my, like my experience with it getting sober is like it's so middle of the road. It's so like it's the little things that fuck you up, but in like a non-dramatic way, you know. Like like the incident of the and and the fighting of just like just fighting yourself to not have one drink, and then you go on and like a shitty thing happens, and it, I don't know. It just feels like for me that experience like it was it was middle of the road, which is like, it's a different kind of drama Well, there's where like you're not fighting line. for your life, but you kind of are in this weirdly um, mediocre way. <laughs> I don't know. So there's it's sort of like the, yeah. There's a really the interesting juxtaposition
0: between the Iceland trip, which is this big dramatic journey that has this finish line and a celebration at the end mm. compared to your experience Being sober, which as you're saying, it's, it's really, it, it's a practice every single day.
1: Yeah. And that like, and that kind of repetitive battle that you're doing, you know, like it wasn't like I was getting scraped up off the tarmac and and it was sort of like, you know, the scenario is if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die like now, you know, like if you do this one more time, like you're going to die you nearly just died then because you like crashed a car drunk or something. Like there's such a – the stakes are so high in that situation that that the, the life or death element comes into it. The survival instinct comes into it. And that can often be the thing that like pulls you out of, of at least the, the kind of like repetition that you're in that might be the catalyst to get you sober. But like my experience wasn't that. You know, I wasn't like, my rock bottom like wasn't the same as as what other people's are and no one's is. Um, but it wasn't that 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 image of scraping him up off the tarmac like he's fucked. You know, if he doesn't do it now, he's never going to do it. He's going to die. It wasn't that. And so like I, I guess as well want to express that there are these other these other versions of it, which which aren't any necessarily any less difficult or any less dramatic, but they're just they're just different,
0: or any less important and real and true. I mean, yeah, I think there's so much power in bringing us, this story to life because, as you said, it really is emblematic of so many people's experiences, and there's so much that we can all gain from seeing real depictions of, of what you've gone through, what other people have gone through and for other issues, you know, we are all dealing with shit in our lives, whether it's alcoholism or something else. And it's, we, there's a lot of power in learning how you've gone through it and how you're processing it and dealing with it and how it's a daily practice, not a fairy tale. You know, it's, it's same thing as no, like, it's you know, Disney movies, how, the prince and the princess get together and they get married and they live happily ever after. And it's like relationships don't look anything like that. Like the, the getting together part is the easy part. The working on it is the hard part.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Like there's tedious work. Right. That's like not exciting in any way.
0: It's hard. It's hard. Mistakes
1: aren't that high, but they kind of are anyway. Yeah.
0: So, We've been chatting for a hot second now and it's worth uh, mentioning that as we mentioned, we're planning on having Chris on to talk about how he he dreamed up with you two the conception of this film. And then also the two Ben's filmmaker Mm -hmm. and the screenwriter Mm -hmm. who you worked with. So we're hopefully going to have them on in the future. I, I guess I shouldn't make any promises. So right now. How If listeners are excited to see this film, it's not done yet, how can they help get this across the finish line?
2: Great question. We just launched a Kickstarter, um, so we're live for 27 more days. And you could pre-order a zine that we're making, which is uh, going to include expedition photos and photos we have already taken in Mexico and parts of the script. So it's going to be a a pretty cool zine dealing, uh, with the topics that we chatted about today. And you could pre-order, a a screening to the film, um, which we will be putting out. So anyway, there's a Kickstarter. You could jump on there and get the goods to be
1: able to allow us to, uh, finish this film off. Yeah, exactly. We, uh, we need your support to finish to finish the film. The film's not finished yet. We still have um, some more days shooting in Mexico City, uh, and then the edit to to piece together and music and all of that sort of stuff. So there are still some components, which is why we're um, doing the Kickstarter because we want to maintain uh, creative control essentially over it. And and so yeah, that's why we're we're going this route. And you do you do get you do get the film and the. In a book or a poster or there's a whole bunch of shit that you, you can get. Go,
0: if you go onto the Kickstarter website, you can see this content. The photos are so beautiful. They're just so stunning. I think you should make a calendar too. I'm just, That just occurred to me.
2: Um, well, it's a little late to add categories. It doesn't but have to be
0: for the Kickstarter, but I want a calendar. I will make myself a calendar. Don't worry about no, it. No,
2: we'll make you a calendar. We'll make you a calendar. And... Um, yeah, please share the Kickstarter with all your friends, family, extended family, uh,
0: nemeses,
2: just everyone. We would appreciate you pushing it out. So,
1: yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you a lot.
0: Thank for you. Thank so you for your time. And, and, Gus, thank you for sharing your story. I know this is deeply personal and not easy to talk about. And we, we really appreciate, or I really appreciate, you sharing it with us i feel like we have so much that we can learn both from your experience and also from your experience of sharing it which is as as you said really really hard to
1: no worries appreciate it i it uh yeah talking about it is is a good thing uh ultimately and it's nice that there is a space in which i'm able to do that without being too heavily judged uh and 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 in fact, I'm supported. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for the support from everybody.
0: Well, and that's one of my selfish hopes with this with your film project, that just talking about these topics will make them less stigmatized and just folded into the fabric of society so that the next generation, when they're dealing with these things, they don't feel the need to have to hide it from their family and their friends. And, and we can be there to support each other. And as you said, to, to be good humans and to help each other out.
1: Absolutely, like the ability to taking that first step of like asking for help like was the game changer for me and that was the thing that got me sober and I think for many people taking that first step is the hardest part and if we can remove the barrier or any barriers to that, then more people will, will be able to, to to deal with what with what is going on because you need to, you need help, you know, you can't do it alone. Like that is very true. And, uh, and so yeah, just removing any sort of stigma. So I hope like it might be a grandiose hope, but I hope that my story can help. At least you know a few people uh, move in the right direction. And a few people who have preconceptions, have those preconceptions changed? Have those stigmas or have those, those sort of aversions or ideas that they have about the disease that is addiction, uh, have them broken down?
0: I appreciate you both very much.
1: We appreciate
2: you, the best moderator in all the lands.
0: Until next time.
1: Until next time. Thanks, Abby. Thank you.